Hi, everyone. I'm Jeff Hunt, your host of the Human Capital Podcast. This is the place where we endeavor on each episode to uncover the deeply human aspect of work. Have you ever taken a personality assessment either at home or work? My guess is that you probably have. And if you have, I'm curious about what your thoughts were about your assessment. Was this a positive or negative experience? Has it helped you in your relationships at work or at home? Today, we're gonna talk about the advantages and disadvantages of these assessment tools and take the time to do a deep exploration on one tool that I think provides significant value. In fact, we're gonna take two episodes to break this all down for you and I don't think you'll be disappointed. Let's talk about the assessment or testing industry for a minute. According to Psychology Today, approximately 80% of the Fortune 500 companies in the US use personality tests to assess employees and potential candidates. This enormous industry ex exceeds $3 billion a year, but it's also a crowded market with a lot of variability. Some of the more common tests you might be familiar with include Myers-Briggs, Caliper, DISC, and strengths finders. And some advantages of these tools include things like improved self-awareness and from a recruiting standpoint, the ability to understand candidates better, the opportunity to shorten the recruitment cycle, eliminate bias, and even in some cases, spot dark personality traits. And for most organizations, they have the goal of helping employees uh, learn how to work better together. But however, there are some disadvantages, including the fact that many of these tools are inaccurate. They can actually increase recruitment bias. And there can be interpretation problems if you don't use a consultant. People can also make false assumptions about others based on their assessment type. And they can put people in categories or boxes. And the fact is that humans are much more nuanced than this. And so, as I mentioned, we're going to focus on one assessment uh, today, which is called the Enneagram. And I personally have found tremendous value from this assessment. And I happen to know my guest believes this also. <laughs> I actually don't know of a more qualified person to help me explore the Enneagram than Ginger Lapid Bogda. Ginger runs a consulting firm called the Enneagram in Business and is a consultant, trainer, she's a coach, and she has over 35 years of OD experience. Ginger has worked with Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, uh, service organizations, and has literally written the book on the Enneagram in Business. No, actually she's written four books <laughs> with her fifth book coming out shortly. Ginger has trained over 500 professionals worldwide on how to use the Enneagram in their professional work. And she has her bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley, a master's from UPenn, and her PhD from UC Santa Barbara. Welcome, Ginger. Thank you very much, Jeff. It is a great honor to welcome you on the show today. And I'm very excited to unpack the Enneagram with you over these two episodes. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned on today's episode, we're going to focus on the background of the Enneagram as an assessment tool. And then next episode, I'm super excited to unpack your new book, Team Transformations, right? Well, the new title is Transform Your Team with the Enneagram. Build 
build trust, um, decrease stress, and increase productivity. Fantastic. So I had the opportunity, Ginger gave me a, an advanced uh, reading of this book. So before it comes out, and I am highly recommending it. We have a lot to jump into today. I would love it, Ginger, if you could actually just start us out by giving us a thumbnail of your career journey. Take us back through that journey and share also who inspired you the most along the way. Hmm. So the short version of the long story, because I'm old enough to have a long story, is <laughs> I started out as a teacher and realized the importance of both learning cognitively and learning emotionally or interpersonally in being an effective learner and an effective teacher. And so, you know, I parlayed that. I've worked in organizations for decades as a trainer, as a consultant, an OD consultant, as a coach. And about 25 years ago, I actually now have about 45 years on me and consulting. It's like really seriously long. But um, about 25 years ago, I crossed paths with the Enneagram. I didn't create it. It's actually three to 4,000 years old. We're not sure how old it is, but it's been evolving over centuries and has had a modern rebirth. And my sort of mission or passion is to bring it out into the organizational world so that organizations can be more effective, people can be more uh, productive and happier at work and more satisfied. And in the process, the secondary is that they really get to know themselves and others better. So I do, and I've, I think at this point, I probably, I don't even, I stopped counting, but maybe two, 3,000 professionals worldwide I've trained. I don't know. I work directly with organizations and I write these books to help kind of foster that. So I want to say something that you said, and I think it's really important. It's the downside and upside. So the Enneagram or it really any assessment really should not be used for hiring. Mm. But the Enneagram types themselves, and there are nine of them, they will tell you a lot about a person's patterns of thinking, feeling, behaving, right? You know that, Jeff. Yes. And they will tell you a lot about their worldview. And so there is a great value to these nine perspectives. But hiring should be based on skills for the job. Sure. And experience, although experience is a tricky thing because, you know, you take one, a person who's had 20 years of experience, but they've been doing the, the same thing over and over. Yes. And somebody who's had eight years of experience, but they learned from it. So I say, which, which person would you hire? Right, right. The other is that what really is relevant to hiring, because it makes a more effective employee besides skills and experience, is their level of self-mastery, their mm. ability to as, you know, understand themselves, work with themselves, not be reactive, but make be more conscious and choiceful, and, and ability to work with all kinds of other people effectively. Now, the Enneagram helps people develop self-mastery. Ah, but type itself, you can get a low self-mastery person of any type and can they can destroy an, you know, a team or an, they're at the top. <laughs> Takes about three months to destroy a top. If you have a top leader who's highly dysfunctional, no matter what their type, and I'd say three years to rebuild it after finally they leave. Wow. I want to go a little deeper into the assessment space. Can you render your opinion about why so many personality assessments are actually used in the workplace today? There is a big market financially and a lot of financial gain for people who provide that. So there's lots of offerings. From the point of view of employers, how do we know how to hire well? Because the cost of a bad hire 
is huge and it's getting more so. And the higher the level you're hiring for, the more significant the role, the worse a bad hire is. So people are like, how do I know how to hire people? And, you know, people can fake interviews and people are not telling the truth necessarily on resumes. I've had that experience myself with people I've hired and it's time consuming to hire people. So I think for some hiring managers, recruiter, it's a shortcut, but is it sometimes shortcuts don't get you where you want to go. So this is an issue, I think, because sometimes like with the Myers-Briggs, for example, I know it's been used in a lot of hiring processes. And I know the MBTI pretty well. Say you have a group and you got their MBTI scores and you go, this is a pretty high functioning group, right? Or people are talented. Let me hire like that based on score. Okay. But are you getting the most variety of perspectives? Are you, are you cloning again? Mm-hmm. You, if you get so many people that are so much similar to one another in by virtue of Um, something about them, the MBTI score, disc score, whatever, then you're going to eventually in the short run, maybe it's easier to function together, but in the medium and long run, and there's a lot of research to prove this, you're going to be in trouble. You don't get effectiveness, longer term effectiveness by cloning on, on any basis. Yeah. So really what you're saying is that by using some of these assessment tools as part of the recruiting process, we could have a counter effect on our diversity mm-hmm. inclusion initiatives. Mm-hmm. We could end up further solidifying our lack of diversity because we're always going for the same type of person because they have proven to be an effective team member or, or you know, they're contributing to the culture, but they're not helping us make better decisions or things like that. Is that correct? Right. And then the other issue is maybe they were good for as is state, but if you look at creating the, the organization, the culture you want in the future, is that going to get you where you want to go? A lot of times there's a default to trying to use Enneagram tests, just for example. And the Enneagram, as I said, cannot really be used for hiring, but you can make a lot of errors that way. But the tests are only about 65 to 70% accurate anyway. Sure. That makes sense. Share a little bit more about the Enneagram. You mentioned it's three or 4,000 years old. That's just ridiculously old. So I assume it was sort of passed down orally, traditionally. Yeah, and- originally. And then things were added to the system and et cetera. So that's exactly right. Okay. So give us an overview of what it is for those people that are not familiar with it. Um, so there's nine types, each with a distinct pattern of thinking a pattern of emotional response pattern, habitual, and a tendency to act in certain ways. No type is better than any other type, although sometimes people want to think so, but it's not the truth. They're just different. The thing about the Enneagram that's really, I think, astounding is it shows you a mirror of who you actually are. And also it's a development system. So it's not about, okay, this is how you are. You can understand yourself better and you can accept yourself more, which is fantastic. But the second thing is, so it shows you how you can develop if you want to with specific uh, development paths based on each type, which is super helpful. So I'll go through the nine types, okay, in terms of leadership style, but you know, I'll reference the type in general. And then I'll give you, I hope, a story that will be short Okay, perfect. And and before you jump in real quick, it sounds like what you're saying is actually it's very pragmatic because when you know your type, there's these very obvious sort of areas that you can work on on a regular exactly. basis to really 
move and live into your higher self. Is that correct? Yeah. So the thing, you know, I'm going to do it to a leadership, but you parenting teachings. It's about how to communicate more effectively. It's about how to give deal with conflict because there's real patterns by type. Well, how we deal with conflict, how we respond to it. Are we helping ourselves? What are some additional ways? It's around more choicefulness. Yes. Okay, great. So let me start with, I'll start with, I'll go one through nine. Okay. So we'll great. start with type one. There are books and people that will give them labels, each of the types. I tend not to do that because um, I don't like labeling anyway. And I think the Enneagram is about showing you who you are and helping you move beyond a label. So I won't do that. But in type one, they're really seeking perfection, although they know they won't be perfect and they're not, but it's constant wanting to be, and they're avoiding making mistakes. They really don't like that. So they're trying to get everything right. So one leader, their leadership style tends to be this, that they see a leader's job is to set clear objectives and inspire others to achieve the highest quality, super high standards, often leading by example, very clear and precise. They tend to be very pragmatic, but developmentally need to relax control because they like to control everything. That's how you get it as perfect as possible. And delegating is difficult because nobody can do it quite as well to the standard. Mm So um, one of my uh, clients who's a one was in a group of peers and this person said, I can delegate, I can delegate to, this person had a span of 45 employees who worked in that space. And so that person said, well, I can delegate. Well, how many people, peer says? Well, two people. Well, why only two? Because I only delegate to people who can do it better than me. And somebody else in the the group said, hey, your job as a leader is to develop people as well. What would it be like if you could do it with people, delegate to people who could do it as well as you? That would be five people. They said, well, you need to expand it. Who can do it 80% as well? And then you develop them. So that's type one. Okay, so let's hear about type two. Choose. Well, this is a type, which is my type, mm-hmm. that's very focused on how other people and helping them do something more effectively, being finding out, tuning into what their needs. They're very intuitive. They tend to focus on others, much less on themselves. So they think the leader's job is to assess the strengths and weaknesses of team members, and they're really good at it, and then motivate their team members towards the achievement of what the organization's wanting to accomplish. Now, these are all different, but they're all really effective. But then you get into a narrow view, like effective in certain circumstances and maybe not so much in others, right? So their strengths tend to be being empathic and motivation of other people and development areas, setting boundaries, saying, no, no, you can't do this. No, that wasn't okay. And setting boundaries so people hear them and delivering difficult information. Usually good at giving feedback when it's emotional and you care about the person or you think they're going to have a strong negative reaction, very difficult. They're also sensitive to the environment. I've known several twos who are in leadership and they they really tried to change the culture of the organization to be more people-oriented and positive and they couldn't do it. Sure. And so what did they end up doing? They got very frustrated. They kept trying and they left precipitously. Hmm. And that's a big loss to the organization because they weren't able to influence the way they wanted to. In the world of two, if it's painful and people are suffering, I can't bear to be in this. Mm -hmm. It sounds like twos care deeply about others and they care deeply about improving the situation. 
but less self-care. So the leaving is like, it's really got to the person and they weren't taking care of themselves, trying so hard to take care of others that they ended up leaving the organization. Sure. And possibly regretting it. So the tendency of the two could be to sacrifice themselves at the gain of the organization or whatever. Exactly. Dealing with. But then you sacrifice and then you give away so much. Gotcha. And don't okay, take great. care of yourself. The other thing that's helpful as you're explaining these is for people to listen to them in terms of which type they think they might be. So if listeners can kind of have an open ear to that. And I would say that a key takeaway there too, at least for myself, was when I when I listened to my type, in some ways it made it described me and it's like, oh yeah, that's me. But then it also made me cringe a little bit because oh, yeah. <laughs> so if those are what you're experiencing, then that could be your your type. Right. So now we're going to get to your your cringe. Although I know you've been working on yourself. So I hope that the more you work on yourself, and that's true for me, I cringe less on my yes. type and work more on the development. Yes. So type three, my type. Let's hear it. All right. So this is the type that's results, results, results. Ready? And fire. Wanting results, wanting to perceive oneself as successful or competent. You define success by their own term. They do. But avoiding failure, that's like at all costs. So, so what happens, their style of leadership is they like to set goals and create plans automatically and then deliver on them. So they create an environment that achieves results. And they think that happens when people understand the organization's goals and structure. So the strength, getting results and staying focused, staying really focused on the deliverables and the results, but the development can be very impatient when things are not moving fast enough and afraid to take risks that where they might fail. And that's a really, even in one's personal life, my son, who's a three, he never would swim because he didn't feel like he could be successful with his feet off the ground. So he's fabulous when any sport except not his feet off the ground. That made him anxious, right? And now he's starting to take the risk and swim and it's okay. And he's even enjoying the process. So, you know, though they can be super competent, but when they feel like they're risking failure or they can overwork them, work themselves so because they don't want to fail, then they can get interpersonally abrupt. The way I say it is the person who could teach charm school needs to go to it. <laughs> you relate to that? You want to give a story about yourself, Jeff? Yeah, well, I appreciate that description. And I'm reflecting on sometimes as a three, what happens for me is I am so goal oriented and focused that I will lose sight of the important connections that I need to be maintaining mm -hmm. and keeping with my team. Right. And it's very interesting too, because obviously I run a software company and our software is, you know, the name of my company is Goalspan. So that's Which sort I of- I laughed when I heard that one. Speaks right into the three, the three dumb. But I will also add, Ginger, that it's pretty incredible when you look across this country because it's filled with threes. And many business leaders and CEOs or executives, people in the C-suite are threes. Now, not always the case, but they get fueled and encouraged and motivated by societal norms and encouragement mm. for this uh, achievement orientation, which oftentimes for people that achievement orientation can be at the expense of a more fulfilling life. So that's a bigger picture discussion that we could probably take offline somewhere else. But Well, I'd also add countries, many countries have a type culture. 
Mm -hmm. And the U.S. is a type three, although different regions are not. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So and in corporate America, it tends to be a little bit three-ish, but doesn't mean all the leaders are threes. So sometimes, and this is for your audience, people might mistake themselves for threes when they're not because the culture of the organization has sort of required them to be very three-like. Sure. One more thing on the three before we move on. I'm sort of thinking about how threes can be leaders, but this is, goes back to your original point of being careful to value every single type on the Enneagram, because if we can fill our leadership teams with a diversity of types, we're going to end up making better decisions. If I fill my leadership team with a group of threes, then we're going to be a little bit more narrow-minded than we would be otherwise, even if we're achievement-oriented, but it's also going to probably have a negative effect on our overall culture. Wouldn't you agree with that? Well, hypothetically, I think it varies whether they're filled with three, right? But I think many, it depends on the company. But let's hypothetically say that the most corporate, the corporations run by a lot of threes, right? What are you going to get? You're going to get results. You're going to get measurable objectives. But what, what might you not get? Enough attention to people, enough attention to development, enough attention to risk-taking. Because mm-hmm. right now, you know, we're in a, a place where 10 or 15 years ago, there wasn't such a need to take risks, right? There was more stability. Now we're in unknown territory. There is a need to take risk. So if the fear of failure is looming and that's your failure avoidant type, that could impact your willingness to take risks. Yes, that makes sense. So, but anyway, to type four, Fours like to think of themselves as different, unique, and special. And they tend to be the most internally oriented of all the nine types. So they're looking at meaning and purpose and vision and real and deep inspiration. That's really cool because they sit right next numerically to threes that are focused on the external drive for results and plans. Here you have a type, let's find purpose and meaning in the work we do, which is really, really important. So we can do excellent work. So Uh, The strengths are creating a deep vision and connecting with others emotionally. I mean, they will hang in there, whereas the threes can be impatient and other types can be more impatient, not the four so much. Mm -hmm. Um, But what are the development areas? Well, not taking things personally that happen and being able to regulate their feelings internally because they're very feeling responsive. So I had a client who I was tasked to give feedback to this person as well as several others and collect feedback and use the Enneagram typing to help them understand how they were processing what the feedback might be. Now, the interesting thing, uh, this person was a four, was so anxious about getting the feedback from me. And the question I asked was why? Because in a prior job, they had gotten some feedback and it had been very negative. Now, the feedback I had on this person was hugely positive. Sure. That person didn't know it yet, but the, the pain of having gotten negative feedback 20 years earlier, 15 years earlier, was so deeply in this person that the fear and the pain, I mean, it was awful. So then I knew I had all this positive to say, but we got through that. And when I gave this person positive feedback, seriously, they slept across their desk. My person is almost twice as tall as me to hug me. The relief was huge. I love that story. And I'll just say that one of the things that seems important, if you truly understand the the nine types, mm-hmm. if I'm going to go provide feedback to a four and I understand what their tendency would be in terms of how they receive that feedback, I might tweak my approach a little bit yeah. so that we can end up with a better and more valuable conversation, wouldn't you say? Right. That's the case? 
Yeah. And then the second thing I would say is it sounds like what you're saying is we should really lean on fours when it comes to things like vision casting within our strategic planning process. We should make sure that they have a, a big seat at the table to help us guide the organizational direction and and okay. So I have a different take. I could say yes and okay. Let's hear if it. you have a very skilled for the job and experienced for, mm-hmm. and they're at the table, which is great. Let them influence you to get more visionary yourself. Let them ah. help you find that inspiration in you. Sure. So like we don't rely on the threes to kind of set objectives and results, right? We right. can find that in us. We don't rely on the twos to try to motivate and to figure out what people need and want. They, we, they can help us bring that out in ourselves. Yeah. That's my, maybe my message. Great. I love that. What of fives. So fives uh, like things to be objective and logical and systematic. They're very mentally cerebrally oriented and they disconnect from with their feelings in real time. Go off and have them later though. So in some sense, their fives are almost the purest of feeling. They just don't experience it in real time. So they believe that a leader's job is to develop an effective organization through research, deliberation, and planning. So it's ready, ready, aim, ready, ready, aim, fire. Mm-hmm. And they want all systems to fit together so that people are working on a common mission. So their strengths are being objective and being logical in the way they approach things. What are the development areas? Well, it's approachability, because if you disconnect from feelings in real time and you kind of keep a little distance, people don't know how to read you and emotional connectivity. They do connect when people they want to emotionally can be at work, or can be at home, but they're selective. They're very selective. So they need to not feel like we're intruding on them. You know, they need 50% more space if we're in physical proximity to them mm-hmm. and the normal space between people and the culture you're in varies by culture is might be 12 or 18 inches. Add six more inches, mm. 12. Interesting. It's Interesting. 18, add nine, more, you know, something like that. Yeah. They just like, they don't want to feel like somebody's coming too close. So most of the five leaders that I coach it's amazing. They get some very similar feedback, which is people feel like they, they may respect them, but they don't feel like they know them. What I tell the five leaders is it's not that they really want to know you. They think they do. They want you to feel that you know them. They want, they're looking for connectivity. So I usually coach them to don't feel obligated to share stuff that you don't want to, but spend time with people, ask them how they're doing and listen. Okay, great. So let's go to six. So sixes are the most complex of the nine types. And this is a type that believes that the world is not certain. There's no, it's not certainty and predictability in the world. So they're trying to figure out how to make it a more certain world. And they know it's not a certain world. So, so they have a ex- relationship to risk. Risk avoidant, risk wanting to go into risk to prove that they're not risk averse. Afraid, you know, it's kind of fun. Some of them are just very dutiful to the team and to the organization. So that avoids their risk. Some create little tribes or families around them. So they believe that a leader's job is to solve organizational problems by developing a creative problem-solving environment. So every person feels that they are part of the solution. Mm. Strengths, problem-solving, perceiving alternative pathways. But development is too little or too much risk-taking and skepticism continuously asking what ifs, what ifs, which can selectively can be good, but too much they can get the perception of 
um, that they're keeping the group or the team or the organization from moving forward because they keep, what about this? What about that? Well, actually, sixes would prefer other people would ask that. So they didn't feel like they had to keep asking. Sixes may be the ones in the leadership team that are willing to ask those questions that other people aren't. And so it sounds like it's a matter of balance. We want to hear from the sixes in terms of their questions to help us mitigate risk, but we want to do that with the correct lens and the right balance. Now, I had one six client who was the kind of six that would go against the fear with, you know, action. And it was a little hard to see that there was this risk thing. The person's team member said, we would follow this leader anywhere. And I said, over a cliff? Yes, if our leader said it was safe over the cliff, and I went, okay, this is a version of six also. Wow. Because they can be quite charming, mm -hmm. right? They may not show that they're playing risk. Sure. What is the seven and their tendencies? All right. So sevens are the most optimistic of all of the Enneagram types. And although, you know, we might think of optimism as a good thing, which it is, but we're talking about like super optimistic, like everything's good and everything's possible and the fewest limitations, nobody has the right to restrict me. We can do anything we want to. Often they think with the right people and the right team, you know, we can do everything, which isn't, of course, in a sense, is that really grounded in reality, but it is a very action oriented, but they love idea generation. That's what stimulates them. And I want to take, because I know some of the people listening are go, well, I like ideas and I'm creative and all. It's not about creativity. It's about idea generation. Some sevens are more creative than others. It's just like really getting enamored of ideas and sometimes liking the ideas as much or more than the execution. So they believe that a leader's job is to get people excited and to create innovative ideas and ventures so that the organization can take advantage of new and important business opportunities. So some of the strengths are being very innovative and enlisting others in their vision. They love that. But the development area is being able to stay focused. They, the attention span is really challenging. Uh, you say something and they're on to something else. They have minds that kind of move from idea to idea uh, concept to concept so quickly. Sure. Um, it's like a computer mine where there's no file folders. Everything's a document. Gotcha. <laughs> and they have challenges adhering to limits. They hate the word no. It's not in their vocabulary. I see. Now, I've had a number of seven clients, but one who's been a long-term client, this leader, a seven, wanted everybody on the team, senior leadership team, to put their own ideas forward and couldn't understand why they weren't. Why? Because this person had so many ideas spewing, coming, that there wasn't much space and time for anybody else to add. Other people were having challenges understanding the ideas because they were happening so quickly to even process. <laughs> There's also a challenge of what are we supposed to execute on? Which of these ideas does this leader like? Are these just ideas? Right. And if we start adding our own, even if we have the space to, that'd be like, instead of 20 thing, ideas, now we're at 30 and more, and we're overwhelmed. I see. So it can be a little challenging to people who work for leaders who are sevens, who might really enjoy working for them, but it's like, what do we focus on here? So it sounds like the seven can be motivating and inspiring and they're filled with energy and they're bringing this life to the team and they have all right. these ideas 
And they're going to bring this level of energy that might not exist otherwise, but it also sounds like the challenge is reining that in a little bit so that we retain some focus and we retain some direction and we retain enough margin in the group for others to contribute. Is that correct? Right. The leader thought, I'm asking for them to contribute. Didn't understand why they didn't. There wasn't any space between thoughts. Sometimes the sevens, I had one, another seven client. I said to this person, do you ever breathe? Because the words were, and ideas were coming so fast. And that, you know, it's like, you're not breathing. There's no space for other people to contribute into the system. I'll add a footnote to the seven before we moved on, we move on to the eight. So you mentioned your son. Well, my, my younger son is also a seven. So he happens to be a musician. Mm -hmm. And we, for those of you that are interested between episodes 25 and six, we recorded a bonus episode where I had the opportunity to interview him. He's very familiar with the Enneagram. He knows he's a seven and he wrote a song called still that episode. He goes into the value of being present Wow. Both in the workplace and he brought his experiences from as being a camp counselor sort of into the episode. And we we unpacked those from a leadership lens. But it seems like when the seven can have the ability to really arrive and be present, then there's this opportunity to to show up in a new way that's really going to enhance things. My reaction to your story, I imagine you are very proud of him for that because not only is creative and all, but being still is the one of the most challenging things for a seven. They're always in motion. Their minds are in motion. They use their arms, you know, a lot to explain. And they often pace and they need to be moving and really moving. So to be still is to be present, but for any of us, but to be dealing with our emotions because there's a way that sevens do move away from their emotions except joy. They love that. Mm -hmm. And so the name of the song, the piece is still, I mean, that's just so amazing. Yeah, I'm very proud of him. So, okay, number eight. Type eight, okay. So eights are the big, bold, you know, superheroes or so they think of themselves. Sure. They can take the city. They're supposed to protect the the weak, the victimized, although they don't like weakness in others at all, because they need to be strength and boldness. But if people are being abused or being treated poorly, they are the first to show up and be the big defenders. And if you understand it, it's like only the powerful can defend or big enough to defend the weak, right? So mm-hmm. it kind of works. And in leadership, they believe that it, their job is to move the organization forward by leading decisively getting capable and reliable people in the right jobs, then they can trust your work and empowering competent people to take action. They don't empower people that they don't perceive as competent, but if they don't perceive you as competent and they have anything choice about it, you won't be working for them very long. So their strengths can be taking charge and being assertive, but the development areas, of course, each type has both sides, being receptive to others' opinions. The eights are a type that kind of trusts their gut reaction. If they have a reaction to something or about action or about an individual, they kind of believe that's the truth. And they're often not as receptive to others. So it's about sometimes you need to be receptive. You can't always trust your gut about people. They like big action. They don't like medium action. They don't like small action. It's got to be big. So sometimes big action isn't what's called for, but their guts say, take this big action. And they can overextend themselves tremendously. They go into like overhaul, overwork, overdue. I don't want to concern people. 
too much, but I need to say this. Sometimes they don't pay attention to how overworked they are or their physical well-being. And they can land up in the hospital out of sheer exhaustion, or there could be something wrong, but they power through some ailment and then it can be serious. So it's about really paying attention, not to just moving, powering forward, but to whether you're leading a team powering forward or you're pushing yourself to power forward and power on, it's to also allow yourself to power down and be and pay attention to what's really going on and to be more receptive. So for eights, it's paying attention internally to what's going on and whether they actually are overworking and whether they are listening in. Over, or overeating or undereating or over exercising or under exercising or, you know, over under, they tend to go either over or under. Sure. And then it's a matter of also paying attention externally. So on your team, for instance, making sure to pay, pay attention, are you allowing other viewpoints? Are you really allowing enough space for mm-hmm. people to provide a viewpoint and inform the decision? Yeah, exactly. The other thing I'm getting the sense about the eight Ginger, it sounds like the way you've described them, they're, they're showing up with a big presence. Is that often the case as they sort of- Yes, even if they're, and some are more introverted, like anybody, and some are quieter, which doesn't mean you're introverted, but their presence is felt, whether they're talking or they're not talking. Gotcha. And they know how to power up energetically, somatically. All right, type nine. The nine, the kind of viewpoint is I go along to get along. I want harmony. I want everybody to feel part of this. They tend to really value consensus, everybody having a voice, being respectful, not being rude is super important to them. So they believe their job is to help everyone achieve the collective mission by a clearly structured, harmonious work environment. So sometimes it's like people say about minds, they don't like conflict. That's partly true. They don't because it creates disharmony. But on the other hand, they're super good at mediating conflict between others. They listen to you, they nod their heads, they seem to, they understand multiple perspectives. I've seen nines mediate conflict between two others where the two other people didn't even need to get together. They felt so listened to and understood. So their strengths of the nine leader is creating consensus and listening to multiple viewpoints. And they really do value multiple viewpoints. But then on the other hand, Developmentally, taking a firm stand, sometimes it can be very hard for nines and leaders do need to take stands, but the question is how, what, when, and how, right? But for nines, it can be hard to take a stand because they don't want to create tension and conflict. And sometimes they're not quite sure because they see so many perspectives, what their stand is. And sometimes they want to hear everybody else because they like what amongst all these viewpoints, what be common ground, but they do, leaders do need to take a stand sometimes. It's It's important for nine leaders to develop that. And then they need to also learn how to face conflict directly and not get throttled because many nines feel it in their bodies when there's conflict directed at them or they're angry and they often will not let themselves be aware that they're angry, but they are, but they feel it in their bodies, right? And then they cause themselves, that causes them to not sleep so well and to feel tension and, you know, it's uncomfortable. And so it's about learning how to do that. It seems like the work of the nine is really to be able to maybe process that emotion, but then let go eventually. And and actually, I guess, look at those situations proportionally for what they really are, not overplayed or overblown. Okay, great. So we've now covered all the nine types and uh, that was a great overview. So thank you so much for that. I'd love to 
shift before we wrap up today's episode and just ask you a few quick lightning round questions and shift away from the Enneagram for a second. So are you ready for that? Oh, of course I am. All right. So the first one is, what are you the most grateful for? My son. He's 31. A great teacher. Ginger, if you look back on your career, what was the most difficult leadership lesson that you've learned? What I've learned is I can only do the best I can do at the moment. And there will be times when people don't like it or misread it or whatever. And I have to be okay with that. That's part of being what a leader is. Who is one person you would interview if you could, living or not? Barack Obama. Or maybe Zelensky. Yeah, I'd want to interview him. Because I don't know how he stepped up into this the way he did. I mean, that's about rising to the occasion. Really rising to the occasion. He's quite a leader, isn't he? I'd be scared to death. Absolutely. Okay, let's quickly summarize today's episode. It sounds like what you're saying is this Enneagram thing is a very, very old tool that has evolved over the the ages. It's become Mm -hmm. more modernized. And Mm -hmm. now its adaptability to business is Mm -hmm. provides tremendous value. Mm -hmm. And each of these types, if I understand you correctly, is not about putting people into a box, but it's more helping them get out of the box. Is that a good way to say it? Perfect. That's exactly right. And what else can you share to help summarize our conversation today? Anything else you want our listeners to know from today's episode? Yeah, I think it's about approaching your system, the underground system, yourself and others with curiosity and not judgment. Mm, That's great. That's quite a leadership lesson for all of us, that lens of curiosity. Well, Ginger, thank you so much for coming on the episode today. I really appreciate all the wisdom you shared with our listeners. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. Let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing humancapital at goalspan.com. Human Capital is produced by Goalspan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.